0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Harper Paperbacks, publisher of Father Mucker. That's the new novel by Greg Oliar. It's called Father Mucker. Say it out loud. Father Mucker. Uh, Robin Antelek, the author of The Summer We Fell Apart says this about Father Mucker quote, A reflection on love, marriage, and parenthood, so astoundingly honest, laugh out loud, funny, and genuine, it'll break your heart. End quote. And Maria Semple, acclaimed author of This One Is Mine, says, quote, Father Mucker is a book you can't wait for your friends to read, too. An exhilarating and fearless celebration of life's highs, lows, and all the glorious in betweens. The name of the book, once again, Father Mucker, the author, Greg Oliar, the publisher, Harper Paperbacks. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful.
0: Jesus, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
1: Just one person at just one time. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. Great show today. Victoria Patterson is the guest. She's the author of two books. The first is called Drift. It's a story collection. It was a finalist for the Story Prize. And the second is her debut novel. It's called This Vacant Paradise. It was published by Counterpoint. It was met with great critical acclaim. The New York Times raved about it. And both of her books are set in Orange County, in the affluent coastal regions uh, of Orange County. That's Orange County, California, south of Los Angeles, north of San Diego. Uh, San Diego, it's an interesting place uh, on the American landscape. And I hesitate to generalize it too much because there's 3 million people or something like that living there. It's big. It's diverse. There's a lot going on uh but I will say that there are a lot of people who report feeling a palpable strangeness in Orange County. And that means people who live there, that means people who might be passing through, that means people who might be there for a few days on vacation at for instance Disneyland, which is located in Orange County in Anaheim. So there's a lot of stuff there. There's mega churches there. Rick Warren, the purpose-driven life, that guy uh, you know, he's headquartered there. I want to say the Trinity Broadcasting Network is headquartered there. There's lots of shopping. There's lots of surfing. So there's there's lots of tan people. There's lots of beauty. There's lots of plastic surgery. There's lots of illegal immigrants. There's lots of stuff going on in Orange County. And it's a it's a microcosm of the country. But isn't every place in the country sort of a microcosm of the country? Anyway, Orange County, the setting for both of Victoria Patterson's books. It's, it's a very uh, interesting place. And what she does is she lifts a veil on it and not in a cheap way, not in a stereotypical way. Uh, she does a sort of magnificent job of really burrowing into the soul of the place and, and rendering it so that you get a real feel for it in ways that are maybe unexpected. OK, so I'll be talking with her in just a minute. Before I get there, quickly some orders of business. The website for the show, otherpeoplepod.com. The Twitter feed, follow it, at otherpeoplepod. Or if you're a Facebooker and you want to follow the show on Facebook or like the show on Facebook or whatever it is, find us on Facebook. Other People Podcast, what is it called? It's just the Other People page on Facebook. So that's there. Uh, Other thoughts. This week, uh, I've been working on writing, trying to find time to write. I've got a lot going on. I'll be honest. It's been very difficult for me for quite a while to write fiction. And part of it is that uh, there could be some blockage. Part of it is that I've got a wife and child. I'm trying to adjust my life, recalibrate, figure out a way to make everything work. I'm running the nervous breakdown. The nervous breakdown has an imprint. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm doing all that, but I need to be writing. I know that. I know I need to exercise that muscle. Uh, And so I sit down to write and what I'm drawn to is short bursts. I'm drawn to literary collage. I'm drawn to this idea, this persistent idea that what I write has to really ring true. It has to make people laugh while wincing regularly. And there can't be much bullshit in it. There can't be any bullshit in it. I want to write the shortest book ever written. I want to waste zero seconds of your life. I want you to read the book and feel the urgency in it. I want to, I want to, you know, it's hard to describe, but do you know what I'm saying? Does anyone else out there feel like this? I feel like, here's what I feel like. I feel like if I gave friends of mine, close friends of mine, a 500 page novel that I had written, it would be asking a lot for, to ask them to read it. And I know that there are people out there who, you know, who can blow through a 500 page book, no problem, but increasingly fewer. At least that's the way that it seems to me. I feel like people are busy. Their attention spans are shrinking. There's a lot of stuff vying for their, you know, for their time. And so I want to write one of these books. Like, how do you write a book that people just cannot put down? How do you write a book that really gets into a person's bones? How do you write a book that is really, that has no fat on it? That's short, but feels heavy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the great Gatsby, that's a book. It's really short. What is it? Like 40,000 words? 35? But it does... It feels heavy. It's heavier than most thousand-page books. So that's on my mind. And so I'm writing in these short bursts. There's a lot of me that just feels like the fiction that I write is just absurd. I try to write like a story, and then I reread it, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And yet I keep trying to do it. And there's a part of me that, that just wants to say, fuck it. Just tell the truth. Tell what you're... You know, tell what's happening. Sort of like what I'm doing right now. But to do that in writing. As if somehow that would be a better option And I don't know if it's a good bad thing If one's good and one's bad Maybe that's just the way I'm going Who knows There's room in the world for that too I guess But I do have that thought And so to get myself loose I would just sit there and write Kind of free write for a while And so I'm going to read you some of the stuff that went down This is the first burst Okay, This is just me with my switch flipped And my filter you know, kind of removed And me just letting myself go Want to hear it? Here we go Nothing is going to happen. Prepare yourself. This entire book will be written from my desk. I will tell stories in bursts. The stories will be memories. They will be drawn from the internet. They will come in short bursts. I will talk about what comes to mind. I will share with you my fears. I will try to put down what is going on in my head. I will try to make this interesting. I am sorry. I actually wrote that. Jesus. So that's one of them. And then in another one, uh, what do I write? I write, everyone has a comp... This is an old joke. I was joking with a buddy of mine. I forget how it came up, but we were talking about the you know the whole thing about how Hitler was a failed artist, and it was sort of like this dark joke where we're laughing about trying to make it as artists and how Hitler was a failed artist, and he was a watercolorist. You know the story. He was a watercolorist, he painted landscapes. he didn't really make it, and then he became Hitler and he was also an author, and his you know he wrote a memoir. Hitler wrote a memoir which was like this extended, what, political grievance? And it's called Mein Kampf, which pretty much everybody knows. And Mein Kampf means my struggle. And so I'm talking with my buddy. We're talking about how he named his book My Struggle. And somehow we, we started thinking, like, my God, you know, like that could be the title of every piece of art ever made in the history of the world. It's an applicable title, My Struggle. And so... You know, you think about it, and if that is the case, if that is indeed true, the fact that Hitler titled his book and and titled it with a title that could be the title of anything, that either means that it's a brilliant title or it's the worst title in the history of titles. And I think, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but because he's Hitler, I'm going to err on the side of it's the worst title ever. And so, I don't know, from there... It sort of evolved on a phonetic level. The word Kampf makes me laugh. I assume that means struggle in German. I don't you know, speak German. But uh, I got to joking where it's like, you know, everybody has a Kampf. I've got a Kampf. You've got a Kampf. Your Kampf can change from day to day. But I sort of use that word because the, the phonetics of it make me laugh. The whole The whole thought process that yielded it in my brain sort of makes me laugh. And my wife and I will joke about it if I'm having a shitty day. You know, she'll be like, oh, is that your comp? Or you know what I'm saying? So anyway, I wrote that down. And then one other thing that I did wind up writing down that catches my eye is the old George Carlin line. Most people aren't very good at anything. Carlin used to say that. Uh, Who doesn't love George Carlin? And uh, I think there's some truth in that. Most people aren't very good at anything. And, you know, what, you know, what what he was saying, you know, I know people are good at stuff. Like, you know, you can make macaroni and cheese. You're good at that. I get that. But what I think he was saying was uh, most people aren't really exceptionally good at anything. They don't have an extraordinary talent. Most people. And what's the number? 95%. Let's just say 97.6% of, hum, you know, humanity is not blessed with an exceptional, extraordinary talent. And let's also stop for a moment and, uh, acknowledge the irony or the, the reality of the fact that George Carlin was saying this and he was exceptionally talented. He was like a comedic genius and he's basically, you know, telling the rest of us, uh, most people aren't really exceptionally talented and the unspoken addendum is, but I am, and you know, he was a good guy and, uh, if you know what he stood for and whatnot, you got to think that he meant it with humility and compassion and not with like some sort of self aggrandizing intent, but it is sort of a funny, you know, irony. So anyway, most people aren't very good at anything. I write that down and you know, then I started thinking about the whole Occupy Wall Street protests and the whole 99% movement. So maybe it's 99% of people who aren't very good at anything. Excuse me. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to sound too gloomy, and i i think i sometimes feel like that though i you know i i hear him say that in his comedy i hear carlin say that or i read it in my own writing when i'm repeating it and it's like oh shit you know most people aren't very good at anything so maybe i can be like the voice for those people (laughs) i don't know you know i'm writing this down it's it's me i shouldn't be reading this stuff but this is what comes out of me and so what the fuck right um I'm trying to think of anything else that I wrote that would be worth repeating. Or at least bringing up here. Just read another article on Steve Jobs about how he was a hippie capitalist. About how he tormented his competitors and was a ruthless businessman. About how he had earned the respect of those he tormented. And then in parentheses I write, questionable? You know, I was just sitting here free associating. So... That's me. That's my comp for the week trying to write fiction and then writing basically neurotic, uh, self conscious, and uh, odd things
0: in short bursts. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow
1: So, yeah, I'm going to move on. Victoria Patterson, she's the guest. She wrote two beautiful books, extended, uh, beautiful, uh, well-written, well-orchestrated fiction. One of them is a story collection called Drift. One of them is This Vacant Paradise. Both are set in Orange County, and she and I are going to dig in and discuss all of that right now. So this is a fascination to me, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. My folks live down in Orange County, and I wasn't raised there, but I've spent enough time there to have, you know, a pretty good sense of the place. And, uh, you know, it's just not the, because of all of its, uh, what's the word? I guess it's, it's such, it's got such an identity now in popular culture because of television in particular. Uh, It's it's not the most likely place to set uh, fiction and yet i right. think i think it's sort of ripe because of all the dysfunction that's down there you know and, and i can't even really necessarily define it all but having spent some time there i do get like a, a pretty visceral sense of uh of a lot of weirdness is that correct yeah
2: yeah it's a really strange pocket of money and and um and politics and just um kind of vapid culturally and and so I went through junior high and high school there, and while I was there, I really um, kind of determined that that would be the area that I would write about.
1: While you were in, and, like, high school and junior high?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So this goes back that I far. Was,
2: yeah, I was going to get my revenge.
1: And you have. I hated
2: it so much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it took me many years, but so I, your entire my writing is motivated by anger and resentment and I, revenge.
1: I was going to say that your entire career is built on <laughs> spite Yeah. (laughs) It's a good lesson for all the children listening out there.
2: Yeah. No, when I was there, even I was going to write a book, and I was going to call it Plastic People, and it was going to be somewhat science fictional about how people were turning into plastic, or they were in various levels of being plasticized. I had this whole thing planned out.
1: So now, give me, a, give me a visual of you in high school. Like, you know, were you, were oh, you goth? Come on. I don't want to see that. No, but I mean, like, <laughs> what, 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 kind of, what kind of kid were you? What was your, what was your situation? Um,
2: well, we, my family had moved around quite a bit. Like, we'd lived in Mexico and Puerto Rico and all these places. And so we, we landed in Newport Beach. My mom remarried and our income level kind of went up. And so we went, moved to Newport right near where my grandparents lived. And so I visited all the time as a child, but I never really lived there. So junior high, high school, <clears throat> um I just really uh was and didn't I could fit in, but I was also really rebellious. And um let's see what would I, I I was on the tennis team. I was making pretty good grades, but I was partying like inland with all the I followed a band around. Which was, band? <laughs> I'm not even going to say. Come on. It, I would say if it was exciting or if it was a good band, but, um, it, it was, it was like a cover band. Oh,
1: okay. And, um, and you followed. And it. I was,
2: I was kind of a groupie. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was a groupie. I wasn't kind of a groupie. I was a groupie, but, um, I've much preferred, preferred, um, like I was always partying with the inland crowd, older crowd than with the, the Newport crowd. Um, or, yeah in the beginning, maybe I tried to fit in, but i didn't i just't couldn't, i couldn 't stomach it and it didn 't work so um, what were the
1: kids like I mean this is the thing because i didn't grow up there I have no sense yeah. of, no sense of it from a childhood perspective but what, what are the kids like who grew up there born and raised what was what were your classmates well, like
2: well, looking back at it now, I think a lot of it was me, probably I just was really sensitive and had a huge chip on my shoulder. but what I saw at the time um was just a like, or it was kind of the stereotype of you go in the parking lot and there's all these Porsches and Jaguar, you know, fancy BMWs and, and it was very white and there. I think we had one black person in our entire high school, um, and yeah, we did. We had one, and I remember my devil's partner. He asked her to go to a dance, and she wouldn't do it because she liked him, but she confided in me that her that she couldn't go cuz he was black and that her parents would kill her if she went. So I tried to reason with her and tell her she should go, but she she wouldn't do it. So um let's see. And um, they were just it was just like a um you know the more money you had the better off uh you were at the school, you'd probably be, you know, president of the student council or Um, so, so
1: let me stop you there. Like the kids were aware, you know, even at that age, kids were aware of, uh, financial discrepancy in a really acute way. Like they were aware of who had a lot of money, whose family had a lot of money.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think, yeah, it really played a, a part, a role in who, who was popular, who was not, that kind of thing.
1: Well, see, that's so, you know, that part of it is what is just sort of striking to me and something that like, it gives me the creeps because like I was such a naive kid by comparison. I I have this conversation relatively frequently because now that I have a kid and I live in Los Angeles, I'm starting to think about this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know anything about that sort of stuff until I was like 20 years old. And even then it was like just barely, you know, uh, entering my consciousness. I mean, it it wasn't that I was completely clueless, but it just was not central or important. And, you know, I lived in uh, what would probably be, called an upper-middle-class suburb of Indianapolis.
2: Uh, Right. You know, it
1: was like a nice suburb, but there was all sorts of different uh, income levels. There were all sorts of different, you know, people were coming from all sorts of different angles. And, you know, there were some people whose folks probably were really, really well off. Most people were just sort of, you know, middle-class and and doing fine, but, you know, nothing, like, shockingly, you know, Newport Beach-like. Right. But it just wasn't an issue. I, I, You know, I just remember being like, oh, cool, like, they have a pool. But it was like... So right. you know, and I just—it's—it's it's interesting to me to think of young people, you know, like adolescent young people, being that, you know, aware of that stuff at that age. It seems sort of sad to me. It's like they don't get to have a childhood. Yeah.
2: No, it's really sad. It's just—it was—and it, I—and from what I hear, it's still very much the, the same, or you know, it hasn't really improved there so it's just re- yeah we're very privileged very entitled and um and, and and exclusive and
1: all that stuff were people really good looking i mean was i, I, I yeah it. it's like lots of good yeah. like, like really good looking like tennis player type people do you know what <laughs> Is that
2: yeah there's lots of really good looking people and there was plastic surgery and um in high school
1: and... in high school yeah yeah what, what kind of pl- like boob jobs and stuff
2: there were, there was a, some boob jobs, yeah, and um, then nose jobs, lots of nose jobs, and, um, and, yeah, pe- and, you know, people would go away for the summer, and they'd come back, and they'd look totally different.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it was crazy.
1: Weird. And
2: it's... so, it was, you know, very much pressure for, for, for the women. There was a lot of eating disorders, and, um stuff
1: like that what about what about like religiosity it's a very religious part of the country i mean orange Orange county is like the as far as i understand it it's like the it's like the um epicenter especially financially but also in terms of population like it's the epicenter of uh like the christian conservative movement in america right yeah it is it's
2: got it's everything kind of begins there that harvest that festival all that stuff the um the rick. crystal cathedral the Tower of power <laughs> well yeah and rick,
1: rick warren's got his church there rick like,
2: warren yeah they're all there The the big mega church christian and and that was um a big part when i was growing up to or when i went through junior high and high school it was it was really um popular and i mean you everybody was becoming Christian and sort of there was this pressure on me to become a Christian and i, I that was really hard too. Really? I just couldn't do it.
1: Wait, yeah. so, so the kids, like this was like what, this was a popular thing where popular kids were like, you have to, to go to the Lord.
2: Well, let's see. My my brother became a, became a born-again Christian and then my best friend became one as well. And so they would kind of, you know, there was just this, Pressure and my, my my dad and and stepmom and but I'm not sure yeah there was there was a, like kind of they weren't maybe the cool kids but there was a a large um, or popular kids but there was a large faction of religion stuff going on at all times.
1: Were you at a public a Were that. you at a public school or were you at a, a private? I was.
2: School? I, went, I went to Corona Del Mar High School.
1: Yeah, my sister went there for like a year and was like, no, she, really? she was, Yeah, she got, she bailed though. She moved like we you know she had come from Indiana. And yeah, that would be tough. Yeah, she convinced my parents to let her finish in Indiana. Uh, that
2: so was she, good. She, went she made back. a good decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> imagine moving in like when you're a sophomore. She was just like, what is this, you know?
2: Yeah, my brother went one year at a, in Colonel Mar High School, and then he too um, just decided to get out of there, and he went and lived with my dad and, and went to San Clemente instead. But it was really, he, he he I think he made a wise decision too in some ways.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's such a strange thing because you have, you know, you have the, uh, the political element, the religious element, the financial element, and then you have, yeah. uh, then you, it's all set against this backdrop of like really stunning beauty. It's a beautiful part of right. the world and the weather is spectacular and, uh,
2: yeah, I love it there.
1: Yeah. I mean, every time I go, I mean, it's a nice place to visit and it, it's great to drive the coast down to Laguna and, you know, there's beautiful, beautiful places down there, but, um. I, I I guess I just wonder why it attracts or how, like, do you have any sense of the historical uh, yeah. context of, of the place and like why it has become what it is today?
2: In fact, yeah, I think the, um, if you've heard of Gustavo Arellano, he, he, he has he's written a book about it and he's really he kind of verified all these things and
1: What's his name? That I had
2: felt Gustavo Ariano and he he writes for the OC Weekly and he has a column called Ask a Mexican.
1: Okay. And um
2: I actually did an interview with him. I'm trying to get it up on TNB, but he hasn't he hasn't written back yet. So I think he's just amazing and he wrote a uh, book called our personal history of Orange County and talking about his um his family's His family came from Mexico and their, their, um, transplant into, he lived into Anaheim, but he writes about Orange County. He knows the area more than anyone and he, he really simplified it for me. So it really just, it comes down to money and, um, and the, it's just been a history of, of kind of seeking to protect that, um, little, that realm, you know, of, of money and white privilege and, and, um, and then, he also um kind of goes into the the history of the KKK in Anaheim and
1: whoa and, i didn't know he, about this. He's
2: a, yeah he's actually doing quite a he's doing kind of an exposé of it now um and there's quite a legacy of uh KKK members being in the government in Anaheim and and so that i think sort of permeates the air still which kind of um uh, is understandably why you there aren't a lot of black people in Orange County. And, then, and and
1: let's let's put this into some context. I mean, there there are what three million people in Orange County. Is yeah, right. I mean, exactly. it's a big. I mean, yeah. we, calling it a county, I think, for people who haven't been there, might give people the wrong impression. I mean, this is a huge swath of land, and this yeah, is, this is Newport's
2: a, just a tiny little area. I mean, compared to the whole of Orange County.
1: But, but there is kind of, I mean, the, these kinds of, uh, and, and obviously there are different parts of Orange County and different, right. Um, you know, cultures within that County. But, uh, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely that sense is particularly the closer you get to the coast, uh, right. of whiteness. <laughs> and yeah. then, then there's the Disneyland thing and the mega churches yeah. and, you know, it's there's
2: very a- strange. It's a really strange, yeah, different, um, place, and, and it is kind of becoming more prominent politically, and, and, and it has um, reverberations, you know, all throughout the world now, but it, it's got, I mean, it's got, it packs quite a cultural influence. Well, sure. It's
0: just,
1: and, you know, and it it's is, like, it's
2: a really strange place. Well,
1: yeah, and it's like, if you need to, if you're a politician, and, and you're a right-wing politician, and you need to raise money, you better have friends there. And, yeah, the and,
2: Republican Party and or- and Orange County are tight, have always been tight.
1: Well, sure, and then, then Obama had Rick Warren, uh, you know, didn't he say, before yeah. he said a prayer at his inauguration, which he sure uh, did. was like an olive branch that I think a lot of people on the left were, were sort of bummed about, but, you know, it's just, right. it just goes to show that that, that guy has uh, quite a bit of cultural influence, I guess, and um, I, yeah. have a th- I have a theory on it, and I want to pitch it to you, because sure. I, I've thought a bit about this, and... Um you know, historically, one of the things that pops to mind is that Richard Nixon is from Orange County, um, yeah. which it seems perfect to me. And it's, you know, he's obviously a big fascination, uh, you know, for me, I guess, because I love history and uh, presidential history and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he's from Yorba Linda. And Correct. I have a friend from Yorba Linda. And I think, you know, she and I, through the years, um, have talked about this. And you think about Orange County and you think about the way that it's set up. And obviously affluence moves to the coast. So you know, when you get to the coast, when you when you get to the Laguna beaches or the Newport beaches or uh whatever the case may be, that's it's supposed, you know, supposedly the goal. That's kind of like the the ultimate if you're uh from Orange County or you live there and the further inland you the further in you inland you live, uh the less great life supposedly is um and right. that's you know, a generality but I think there's some truth to it and so yeah. when I'm in Newport Beach there you know and, and it's you know for a big place I don't want to paint it with too broad of a brush because there are a lot of great people there uh including my parents right. Um <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but you know the thing about it is that uh I think that when you sense that dysfunction and it's this dysfunction that comes in the form of like a really bright smiley face, and like this, like blonde hair, and like this, everything's perfect. And but yet right. there's a, there's like a lot of rage, you know, like behind right beeping
2: right underneath. Yeah. yeah,
1: you just feel it, you know. I feel it anyway, or you feel something. Yeah. something isn't right because this happiness is just not quite authentic. Um, right. But I think that maybe psychologically, and maybe emotionally, spiritually, like however deep uh, deeply it runs, you know, when somebody winds up there and every single day is sunny, and the Pacific is stretching out to the horizon, and you're living in this mansion, and, you know, on and on and on, you, you have no reason to be unhappy, or if you are unhappy, you don't know why. And that's kind of a problem. And I, I read something to this effect this week where, um, you know, I guess, I guess suicide levels are higher among more affluent uh, societies and yeah. th- this guy was talking about it and i'm forgetting where it was or who said it but he said something that really rang true to me and it was that people in like somalia or in some sort of like really like in afghanistan in some sort of really repressed or impoverished country they know why they're why they're unhappy
2: right uh, it's like
1: i'm starving <laughs> or i don't have a home or you know i have to work 18 hours a day for a nickel or whatever the case may be and people in Newport Beach don't quite know or can't define what, right. their, what their misery is or where where it comes from. And I think that's,
0: right.
1: you know, that's sort of the case. I feel like people there feel like everything's perfect. And there's like this social pressure to maintain that illusion.
2: Right. Yeah, I totally I agree. And I think, um, yeah, it's been, again, it's kind of been the history of, of Newport and Orange County is this mythology, you know, first it was the, the orange crate, oranges and this paradise. And, and then of course there's, you know, the John Wayne and Ronald Reagan and, and, um, this sort of mythology of John Wayne that is, is he's so revered in that area, and, and
1: well, let's and stop. Let in, me stop you there. Let me because like people don't know, but like the airport in Orange County is called John Wayne, and I mean it's yeah, named, John it's Wayne named, Airport, named yeah. after him. And like, what I don't know his history there. I, know, I mean, he obviously had a, a house there, but what's yeah, his, he had a
2: house there, and his history is just so it's so much more seedy and um, complex and and fascinating than the the actual you know shiny John Wayne uh, mythology. That, that everyone, And I know even recently Michelle Bachman just referenced him, too. It's this conservative ideal, you know, and his real name, I forget what his real name was, but it was, you know, some kind of effeminate name, and he actually had a house on the bay, and he, he would marry um, submissive kind of Latina women, and he was kind of abusive, and there was some big scandal with his daughter in that home that... Um, some boyfriend or something came in there and I remember something like she got her Achilles heel cut or some crazy, you know, there was always crazy stuff really going on, but you'd only, you know, it was the John Wayne um, with the gun, um, you know, putting, presenting this facade to the world. And what? Yeah. What is that? that and, and
1: his, his, his real <laughs> name was Marion Morrison.
2: Oh, that's what it was. Okay, me yeah, and, not and nearly, um, Yeah. Not
1: nearly as, like, uh, badass as John Wayne. No,
2: know?
1: no. Uh, but, yeah,
2: I don't... I, I never really understood it. I just didn't... I, well, was, I was always really curious
1: about that, so... Well, no, it's like... And, you know, it's a... I feel like there's, like, these icons, and it happens, and, you know, it, to be fair, it happens across the spectrum, but, like, um, with Orange County in mind and, and uh, the right wing in mind, it seems like, you know, Ronald Reagan has, has taken on this, like, incredible mythology uh, right. and John Again, Wayne too. And yeah. and I feel like almost Reagan's sort of co-opted the John Wayne cowboy hat yeah. and this man of the I West. So, and, yeah. You know, there's all those old photos of Reagan on his horse at his ranch in uh, Simi yeah. Valley or whatever. And it's, uh, you know, it's sort of fat. And then yeah. George, George W. Bush <laughs> tried to do that with his ranch in Texas. Like, it's like if you have yeah. a ranch and you have, you're out on the land, it's somehow, you know, it speaks to, speaks to those constituents or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it seems sort of strange because, um, you know, I don't think George W. Bush was really much of a rancher though. He liked to clear brush. No. <laughs> whatever. Yeah.
2: I don't know. Yeah. The love affair, the love affair with John Wayne and, and Ronald Reagan is really pretty fascinating. And I know Ronald Reagan was quoted as saying something like orange County is the place where good Republicans go to die or something like that. And, um, and just recently in in Castaway's Park um there was this big controversy because they wanted to erect a statue of Ronald Reagan and um and there were there was there were people against it saying you know this is a public recreational area and politics shouldn't be involved but they managed, you know, the government is very... Every every level of the government is pretty Republican, and they managed to ram it through, and so they're putting up a statue. Where Reagan, is this? It's going to be in Castaways Park, which is... They might even... It might already even be up. I don't know.
1: I don't even know. So what, ca- happens, what is Castaway park? Like a Castaways Park? Castaways
2: Park is this park and that... And actually, I wrote a story called Castaways that's based in that park, and, and it's just this beautiful park, but... Um, but every, for me, every time I think that, like I was saying earlier, you know, more of it is maybe me, my chip on my shoulder, my this or that. I'll, I'll go and I'll read something about, you know, Ronald Reagan statue in Castaways Park, even though it's a park, and or the latest one was um, that I read recently was the w- woman who sent the email out with Obama as a gorilla, you know, that came from Orange County. Sure. <laughs> like, so, you know, and then I think, well, no, I'm, it's not just my imagination that, that this place is kind of kind of creepy and asking to be written about. And
1: um, Well, something so. else that I've heard, and I, I don't know if you can uh, corroborate this, but I have heard or I've read somewhere, and I, I repeat this, so I hope I'm, I'm being accurate, but I, I've heard that uh, there are more swingers in Orange County oh. per capita than anywhere else in the country. <laughs> that makes such sense to me. Know. I want that to be true.
2: I, I hope so, especially with the the radical Christian conservative element. That well, seems but to go but, hand in hand. That's, that's what so I was going to say.
1: Like sexual dysfunction, <laughs> and that and like that level of, um, you know, kind of hyper morality or ideology. Yeah, they, they always seem and to and sort yeah, of be right next to roles, each other.
2: You know, women are women and men are men. And right. Don't 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 dare you go in between
1: those two. Promise keepers, oh. uh, that whole thing. Promise
2: keepers, my dad and my brother were both promise keepers.
1: Yeah. Ugh, that was like that when I went to, I never had heard of the promise keepers, but when I was at the uh, Colorado, I went to undergrad at University of Colorado. And our, oh, fo- think,
2: yeah. our, our football That's coach,
1: under- our football coach was uh, Bill McCartney. And he left coaching to like become either a leader or the leader of, of the promise keepers. I have no idea wow. how that turned out, but it was like, there were these big rallies and it was all these men who were like, Going to keep their promise to like you know stay in the traditional male role and the, their women were going to yeah. be wives and it was all you know it seemed all sort of uh, kind of retrograde or is that the right word? Am I misusing that word? Yeah,
2: maybe. Yeah, I know that yeah, the other that that women aren't allowed in the I they're they're held in football stadiums or were I don't know if they're still in existence and
0: they're
1: probably held. I in remember, like, like Kiwanis yeah, clubs hearing now.
2: that. <laughs> Or uh, when I, when my brother and my dad were promise keepers, I remember asking or something, and they said that the only women that were there were selling the snacks, and that they had to wear dresses or something.
1: Ankle length. And I thought, <laughs> like Amish women, or what
2: you know. <laughs> I thought, wow, that, 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 that's for me.
1: So, I you know, okay. I
2: some snacks on my skirt. Ugh.
1: I mean, it's just so strange. I have had
2: some trouble. Yeah, and I you know,
1: <laughs> this chip that you this chip on your shoulder that you keep referring to, like I have a similar yeah. chip, and I think that a lot of writers I, I I I keep trying to narrow it down and I don't know if it's even possible, but I think there's some truth to the idea that a lot of writers work from grief and that their yeah. work at least, you know, some of their work is rooted in some sort of big loss that they're trying to make sense of. And I've done that. And then there, I think there are also writers who are working from, uh, religion and, uh, you know, I, I feel like there are just a lot of us who get into writing who, and and I'm, I'm really kind of speaking about my own experience. It's like, why do I I have such a chip on my shoulder when it comes to religion and I don't want to, I want to be more relaxed about it in all directions. You know, this is the way I am. If you want to be different, fine. But I feel like as a child, when you're growing up in an environment like that, and you're in a family where things are a certain way, and you right. happen to feel differently, you have different yeah. thoughts, and those yeah. thoughts are at odds with, you know, your parents or the rest of your family, uh, or the, or the, whole, or the or, whole
2: environment.
1: Yeah and, <laughs> and, yeah, and or the whole environment. I think one yeah. of the reasons I got into writing or wanted to write was because I wanted my voice to be heard. I wanted a chance to be able to say my own piece about it, and... Um, does that make any sense to you? do you feel that absolutely. way
2: absolutely yeah, I think especially with my the story collection drift, I think I really was writing to my sort of high school self and um and if i if I had had that book to read when I was in high school, it would have really helped so um I imagine hopefully that somebody in in living there in that in that area might read it and well, it's probably banned
1: and, it's banned from Corona del Mar high school. I know.
2: They're, they're burning uh, it. Yeah,
1: they, <laughs> they're burning it in trash cans.
2: I should go fly over on a plane and drop.
1: You should <laughs> a quad. over the over like a football game oh. or something over a tennis game. Oh
2: no, yeah, exactly.
1: Well, have you heard from anybody in Orange County? Who's I mean, obviously you probably had some readers down there. I mean, have you been hearing? Yeah, from any I have. Readers?
2: It's been that's been really interesting. I, I I've been um, sort of embraced there in a way and at Newport Beach library they've been very friendly and um, and some other areas I did have one uh, q and a kind of reading thing recently in Newport where I actually had um, a heckler heckling me and then a heckler heckling the heckler
1: <laughs> nice who is <laughs> so the heckler
2: the heckler was the woman she'd had a couple glasses of wine and she she was really deeply upset by this vacant paradise the novel and so she was uh, sort of lambasting the book and at the same time insisting that she was complimenting me, but it had obviously provoked some, something in her. She, she was very upset. And then
1: the heckler she, that was
2: heckling. I was going to say, saying, what did saying, she look
1: like? What did the heckler look like? Give me, give me a visual read on her.
2: She was maybe like mid sixties, um, um, had lived there her a long time. She, her cheeks were very flushed and she was very upset. It was, it was startling i was and I was doing a kind of a q and a, and she just went into kind of a five minute monologue about the book and I think um the book really rattled her just maybe out of i i i'm trying to remember exactly what she said about it. she just said it was you know truly, truly upsetting, and this and that and and then there was another woman off to the side standing up who was also kind of older. And her cheeks were very flushed, too. And she said something like, it's hard to have a mirror. It's hard for you to look in the mirror. (laughs) She said to the heckler that was heckling me. And so I was just kind of like trying to... I was just kind of nodding my head and going along with it. And then, because this vacant paradise is um, inspired by the House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. So the woman, the heckler, that was kind of heckling... I guess she wasn't heckling my book, but she was very just very upset and going on and on. And she said at one, so I was sort of nodding my head and just listening. And then she said, um, and after I read your book, I went ahead and read Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth to com- see what that was like. And then she said, and that book's not very good. She uses Edith Wharton uses way too many semicolons. And then I got upset. I was okay when she was upset with my book. <laughs>
1: right. Don't mess with Edith.
2: But once, she, now, once she started dissing Edith, I, I said, I got, I had that kind of flare of adrenaline where you get that angered thing surging. And I, I probably got flushed too. And then I said, then we choose to disagree. And I said, you know, Edith, War-, and I was very upset. So I got an email later from the person who'd organized the reading and she said, everybody was kind of thought it was funny that I didn't mind when she went off on my book. But as soon as she brought up Edith Wharton, that was it. That
1: was it. The closer are off. Cat fight. <laughs>
2: It's like no way you don't say that about Edith Miss Wharton. Oh
1: my God, so, how <laughs> so after, things, after how that things...
2: I've just that was kind of tough, and then I kind of felt shaken for the next couple of days. So after that, I decided maybe no more reader groups and new property.
1: Well, but you know, you gotta gotta go into you gotta go into the lions. Then I think I, mean, I
2: don't like that. I, that's my whole thing. I think you know the I just I like to put the book out there and then hide. I did not. That was not fun. I did not like that. And yeah. I have one coming up. It's going to be like 70 women in <laughs> Karnadal Mar. I'm kind of scared. I'm going to wear like a thing of armor.
1: I think you should wear Kevlar. I mean, you never know what could happen.
2: <laughs> but the majority of people come up to me and they'll say, um, the people from, from like I'll be at a reading or at the L.A. Times Book Festival and I had someone come up and say, you know, I've lived in Newport and they'll kind of look around and make sure no one's listening and then say, thank you so much for writing about this. And I feel like you're telling my secrets and this and that. And then they'll kind of scurry off. Well, the majority from Newport has been positive.
1: Yeah, that needs to be said because there, there are so many people who probably, you know, who do live there who sort of live in the shadows or can't speak up or feel like, you know, to do so would, would cause more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who live there. So there's a lot of variety. That's the,
2: yeah, that's been the majority. of, And especially the people that work or uh, on the, you know, waitresses or in bookstores or booksellers or those people always come up to me and tell and not only thank me but also tell me their own stories about living in that environment you and working sp- for, you know, being on the fringe of all that money and, and working for these people or, you know.
1: Do you have any examples having, of anecdotes that you've heard?
2: Well, the one I have, I have the the independent bookseller who was providing the books for one of my readings. And it was that same reading. The woman sort of went off on me and I have a character in The Stake in Paradise Grandma Eileen, who's sort of Dickensian and just super racist and she, every time you think she can't get worse, she gets worse and she's very um she's very easy to hate, but people kinda love her at the same time and and she's kinda over the top in some ways. And so this um and this bookseller came up to me and said, because um, I someone had asked at the reading said, are you going to write about Newport again? And I said, well, maybe I'm done because I'm feeling, I'm just exhausted by all this. And, and um, so maybe I'll write about something else. And he came up to me and he said, no, please write more about Newport. And there's more, you need to write more. And he was saying, we, we need it. And then he said, and your grandma Eileen, I mean, she's not over the top. He, he said, I had." and then he told me there's this very prominent, um, very wealthy, one of the wealthiest Guy, people in Newport. who I won't say who it is. And his wife came into the bookstore the other day, and there was um, some a crowd of uh, people. And she said, "What are all these, you know, effing Koreans doing?" <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and he, you know, and he was telling me that you know this had happened just the other last week. And so, I, you know, even my grandma Eileen. is not. She's pretty racist, but there's a. There is that incredibly ugly, racist um, face.
1: Well, and just, you know, this is the other thing. Like, you think about it, and I don't want to be ageist or, you know, I don't want to discriminate uh, along those lines either. You know, I don't want to be hypocritical. But this is something I think about personally, which is I, I don't ever want to become entrenched. Why is it that some old people just get entrenched, they they, they can't, they, it, I don't know, it's so frustrating, Why, I, because there are older people who remain flexible of mind, and, um, you know, have a, a, what's the word, like a courageous spirit, or a,
0: you know yeah. what I'm talking
1: about, there are old people who, who have it figured out, and who, uh, you know, re- remain sort of vital until their dying day in that way, and then there are just some old people right. that just sort of like, I feel like fold in on themselves and all of this fear and just want things to be solid and stable and the same. And that's so at odds with reality that it's, it's, it seems sort of elemental or, or, you know, it's, it's frustrating to me.
2: It is frustrating. They sort of put their heels in and say, I'm going to, I'm not going to open my mind at all. I know. Yeah. And it's so, to me, it's so on the surface they're racism, and then they yet they insist that, that they're not racist. You know, there's a lot of the birther thing with Obama. That I hear a lot of that. And, I mean, that it's just crazy in that that sort of thinking, and yet they they're sure that it has nothing to do with racism.
1: Nothing, nothing at all.
2: Uh, yeah, of course not.
1: Well, but and just to, t- to touch back on politics because I, I forgot to finish this point, but uh, the whole Nixon thing. Um, yeah, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into it cause I, A, I don't know enough about his, uh, history, but it has always fascinated me that the guys from Yorba Linda and like one of the hallmarks of his character was that he was anti-elitist. He had a big chip on right. his shoulder and he was raised, right. I think he was raised like lower middle class back in the day in Yorba Linda in right. I think a pretty dysfunctional house and, he had a lot of resentment for the East Coast elites and these moneyed people and, you know, he sort of found ways to channel that and tap into it in the electorate. Uh, but where did he wind up retiring to uh, after he got impeached? Wasn't he down in San Clemente? Or he was...
2: Yeah, I think he so. Was, he
1: was on the coast, you know? <laughs> he wound right, up, right. So he, he did finally make it, you know, if the whole, you know, idea of that's where good Republicans go to die, I mean, that's where he went to yeah. die. Uh, I think
2: too. It's interesting, too, that... That, 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 he's really the only Republican local who's made it on a national level is Nixon from Newport. And I think that's because a lot, of, this is just my theory is that the Newport local fringe of Republican, they're, they're so radical. I mean, they're so to the right that they can't even make it on a national level. Well, like the, they, the might have, they might have
1: their day. They might have their day if things keep going.
2: <laughs> oh, dear God,
1: <laughs> you know, because like that's the thing though, is that Richard Nixon's politics and Ronald Reagan's politics—if you laid them down today, those guys wouldn't stand a chance. You know, they like Ronald Reagan no, raised true, taxes, yeah. but yet, yeah, like the you know, he raised taxes and he naturalized illegal immigrants and he did all these things that are kind of anathema to the platform today. And you sort, yeah, but, but yet
2: yeah, they they have a vision of him as something else. Right? Like they you, won't even.
1: Most of them wouldn't even believe that that is true, you know, because he's, he's no. got this, like, symbolic value. He's, like, this ideal. Yeah. It's very strange, very strange and uh, strange. fascinating. And, you know, you were asked at one of your readings if you're going to keep going, and, uh, you know, that that is a good question. I mean, do you think that there are yeah. more books in you that are based in Orange County and Newport Beach? I don't
2: know. Right now I'm working on a short story, and I have another one in mind, and they're both not... In Newport Beach, but I probably, I don't know. I really, I I probably have, have, haven't finished, the, and I probably will go back to it. But um, it's I, kind of a relief to take a break.
1: I can imagine, but I sort of hope you do. I mean, I think that that I
2: know, I probably will. And I
1: think there's sort of like and, an opportunity for it, because like that area needs its, you know, it needs its artist, it needs its author.
2: Right, it, it, it hasn't really, it's had, it, it's had all other sorts of... Um, openings, but nobody's ever written about it in a literary way that I know of.
1: Yeah. So,
2: yeah, I was kind of ready for that.
1: So now, uh, when you, I mean, has there been any like film interest or anything in this vacant paradise? It seems like it might be the kind of book that I could see having some sort of Hollywood appeal just because it would serve as, as kind of the antithesis to what we've gotten in popular culture so far about that, that area.
2: The, my, my agent does have a, uh He has been kind of moving it in that direction, but he has encouraged me not to think about it, which I haven't. The the only um, so far interest has become was from um, Hillary Swank as a production company with another woman. I forget what it's called, but they like they did they want to write movie or they want to film uh, movies about women for women is the whole idea and kind of open that up. And um <clears throat> I recently got an email from them, and they they really liked it, but it's just so dark that um they're not sure so. there's
1: no vampires in it or actually, <laughs> there's no, no there's no
2: vampire that's what my <laughs> said too you said it you know if there's no comic book or vampire element um so I try not to think about that and and just keep writing and and um see what happens but i've been it was featured in the Hollywood Reporter and I think because people are so fascinated with the Newport Beach and Orange County maybe that gives it that um aura some people might be interested in it that way
1: well no it seems like I mean it seems like it's bound to happen at some point I mean it's been built up into it's been built up into this myth that's total bullshit and your book sort of deconstructs that and Right. You know, everybody's got their idea of it now. And so to take it apart and to do it well, I think, could potentially really resonate with people.
2: Right. Yeah, that's great.
1: And it's like it should happen on the Jersey Shore. It should happen, you know. Someone's got to write like a really hard-hitting literary novel or story collection out on the Jersey Shore about what life is really like there. Yeah. You know, I mean, these these places have become, you know, uh, such two-dimensional jokes, it seems like. Right. Um, yeah. so tell me about, I'm curious now to know about, uh, what happened to you post high school? Like, you know, you're in high school, you're miserable, you're sort of, <laughs> this chip, this chip is building on your shoulder. You've got all this resistance to the culture and to what's like sort of swirling around you
0: right. and
1: you know that you want to become a writer, uh, right, from a young age and what happens next? Where do you go after?
2: Well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a sad story because I, I ended up, um, crashing and burning it. About age twenty and ended up in a, a, a chemical dependency unit of a mental or of a yeah of a hospital the <laughs> lockdown sort of thing for so i I really kind of had a nervous breakdown and um were you drinking were you
1: drinking or was it what was i it?
2: was doing yeah quite a bit of stuff and um so that the the good news is that from there it got better. But it was and after I went through there, I ended up in a a woman's recovery home and for I think about gosh six or seven months. So I dropped out of college and basically um, scrambled and got my life on a better track. And from there, I just kept writing and um, and but I, you know and I was wanting to be a writer during that time, but I I was you know, a mess. It was crazy. um, So
1: where were you in college?
2: Well, I went back east to college. I went to Mount Holyoke College because I figured I'd get as far away from the West Coast from (laughs) Newport as I could. So (laughs) it was an all-woman's college. And I figured that would help too because I was, you know, I had all sorts of trouble with men. Like
1: what? What do you mean? What do you mean?
2: Oh, I was just out of control. I was basically, you know, um, in a lot of, in a mess. So I, I figured if I go back east, I'll go as far away from this area I'll clean up my life and I'll go to an all woman's college where there's no men, so that'll help too and um, But what happened was I just brought a lot of craziness with me and to the east coast and um went went downhill there um, the it was a you know it's a wonderful college, and I just uh, couldn't take advantage of it because I was so out of control. And my roommates used to call me Crazy Victoria from Southern California, I think. Is, um, and um, it was, it was. you know, I was just a mess. And um, so I came back for a summer. I think I was working at, and I was living with my dad in San Clemente and working at a restaurant when um, I finally just sort of said, "I'm. this is not, you know, something's got to change or I'm going to, I'm going to, probably die or something's going to happen. So I sort of talked to my dad and they had me go talk to this um, person who said, you need to go into this hospital. So I went into the hospital at 20. And um, and then from there, they said, you need to go here. So I went to a woman's recovery home, So called what, New Directions for Women.
1: How long were you in the hospital for?
2: I was in there for about 28 days.
1: Okay. So it was like a 30-day deal.
2: Yeah, a 30-day deal. And I was with... The majority of the people with me were from Canada because of the socialized medical system. So they were mainly middle-aged Canadian men, and, and the, me at 20. So and five. they were
1: they weren't paying for it out of pocket. They were allowed to go there and yeah, do it was well.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Unbelievable. And,
2: yeah, and some of I know I've never really talked about that or written about it yet.
1: Yeah, it, seemed, it, was really, it seems like a kind of a rich experience, but you probably have to have some pretty good perspective on it or some distance from it to be able to see yeah. it. Yeah.
2: So what was so, it, just like
1: basic therapy stuff? I mean, you go through a 30-day program, like you're just getting kind of the tools to like...
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: That sort yeah. of stuff. And then you go to this home for like six months and you're with other women?
2: Women that mainly... Yeah, it was a woman's recovery home called New Directions for Women. It was great. A lot of women come from jails and... And um, or you know that kind of thing. Um,
1: Where is and
2: it? It's, it's in Costa Mesa. It's still there. Um, so yeah, it's a good, it's a great place.
1: And then you came and, out of there. I mean, and you went back
0: to college. And then afterwards. I came out of
2: there. Yeah, and then I went. By that time, and I went back to college, and then I went to instead of uh, at that point, uh, Mount Holyoke was kind of out of. Um, my parents were no longer willing to kind of go with that. So I went to UC Riverside and I got my undergrad there. And, but I, and I was writing this whole time, you know, I was journaling and I just, just kind of finding my way. And then after UC Riverside, I was going to try to be a lawyer and I didn't, and I got past the bar and I got into law school and then I realized, you know, that's not who I am. And I, you know, all those kind of things that writers do try to figure out who they are.
1: I'm still trying. I'm still trying
2: to figure Mm, out. I know. know. And then um, that I was writing through the whole, you know, the whole time writing and waiting tables basically. And then um, I met my husband and we moved to um, Pasadena so that he could go to art center because he's a painter. He's an artist. So we moved um, and we were together about three years and then we married and I have two kids that are thirteen and eleven now, and that whole time um while we were there, um I waited tables at a really f- kind of fancy swanky not too i mean it's in in San Marino, you know, so I was again waiting tables and waited tables for years and continued to work and write and get all my rejections and um, did, did you write some really
1: bad stuff i mean was it I ago? did
2: my first two novels were so bad, so I'm really. Grateful now that they never were published, and you know, at the time you think, um, or I think, I'll never have my moment, or it'll never happen, and 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 the world is against me. But in looking back now, I think, thank God, I wasn't ready. And um, yeah, so two novels got buried, and many, many rejections, and then um, my in two thousand four, I went back to grad school. UC Riverside again to get my master's and by this time I had a huge amount of material that i had been working on which was the story collection and I was really ready and more than ready to to have that concentration on my work and so it really kind of came together in that two years that I was at grad school um, and, and I was pretty much ready for everything.
1: Well, that's what I think. I think point. that that's, that's usually the case with MFAs. And it's kind of like, a, Yeah. when people, at, you, know, you get asked about it, if you've been through one of those programs. And what I always say is that if you, if you go into it and you're already a working writer and you've been accumulating pages and, you know, right. writing, right. writing all the of the your the crappy years. stories and yeah. then you get there, it can be great. But if you show up, uh, hoping to be made into a writer by right. an MFA program, you're likely to be sorely disappointed.
2: Yeah, I'm really glad I didn't go younger because I'd really worked in the in isolation for all those years and knew who I was and what I was writing and what I was about and what I was trying to do and also had developed all the discipline and um, knew that I was going to continue to write no matter what. And so when I went back, I, I was really ready for just the kind of... Um, stimulation of having other writers around me and and opening or leading me to other authors that I hadn't heard about. And, you know, I didn't really grow up in an artistic family or literary family and I didn't, I had other friends, but I didn't have anyone really writing the way that I was or trying to do what I was doing. I was, I didn't know people. So that really helped just having other people that were with the same goals and ideas and
1: well, just yeah, just to meet other writers. It's so rare when yeah. I mean, you've been working in your little office on you know. In no, your house. it
2: was great. I remember being one of my first classes. I looked over, and there was this woman, and she was scribbling away in her book or in her journal. And um, I said something to her, and she, and she was commenting on how she only used a certain kind of pen. And I thought I was the only one who was really <laughs> freaky about pens. Me too.
1: I know. <laughs> no, I think I was it's like, common. really
2: there's others like us out there.
1: What's I your pen? What's your pen?
2: Mine is a Pilot, very fine. Um, here I have it right here. What is
1: it? Pilot razor point.
2: Precise V five um, rolling pin, black, extra fine.
1: Extra fine. Okay, I can appreciate that. I think I was a Pilot. Pilot, Ra- yeah. I was a Pilot yeah, razor Pilot. point. I had a Pilot razor point fetish for a while, and I'm now into the Sharpie ultra fine point. Um,
2: oh, I'll have to check that out
1: it's nice it bleeds a little bit too I mean it's like a little bit too heavy sometimes it bleeds through the paper if the paper's not thick enough yeah, right. um,
2: yeah no I like my extra fun they run out of ink kind of quickly though
1: But well, that just gives you an excuse to go shopping for more that's kind of exciting
2: <laughs> yeah they have packs of eight you can get
1: <laughs> so, so now tell me a little bit about your uh, public like how you finally came to, to become you know being a published author counterpointed both books right
2: no, um, Houghton Mifflin Har- Houghton the first one, and then they became Houghton Mifflin Harcourt during okay. the whole process. But basically, um, I had been published in a little places. I mean, in a few places before before I went into UCR, even. So I had something, some things going, and then things started happening more and more. And I and I met my agent um, when I was at Squaw Valley Writers Conference.
0: Yeah, who, who's your and agent? That,
2: his name's Michael Carlisle, okay um, that was and and so that happened and from meeting him and from him finding me, it took eight months to get drift published or to get a deal I'm sorry a deal and um it was taken by Anjali Singh, who's the editor there who worked with me for three years after she bought the collection, so it was from two thousand six to two thousand and nine um and while I was working on the edits, I started writing this vacant paradise, which was really good because, no, looking back now, with having them both published, I realized I couldn't, I wouldn't have written the book had I already been published because I would have known that people actually read it and get upset, um, and I wouldn't have been as been as risky or daring or out there. Um, I would have been much more tame, I bet. So um, I'm really glad for that, and I basically started writing the novel because during that whole waiting process for Drift to come out, um, I had a writer friend who I would call her and sort of fret about what's going to happen, this and that, and she'd say, what are you working on now? Why don't you start working on something? And that really saved saved me and because there was a lot of drama. When Drift came out, I gave galleys to my family and bu- about three months prior to the publication, and... My parents um, w- which I knew was going to probably happen because they 'd never read anything that i 'd written before, really, and they didn 't really know, and I sort of warned them that um, it was pretty pretty um, emotional and hard difficult for them. It was kind of a drama there was a lot of drama, so um,
1: they got angry or they were just upset by some of the there stories? was like
2: a yeah, there was a kind of a three month silence where nobody was talking to me.
1: that's always nice right up to when you right right up to when the book published and was released to the public is that correct
2: what's that it was like
1: the the three months leading up to the book appearing in stores just radio silence
2: yeah it was tough for them and then um they finally they kind of came around but it was really rough and i had warned them i'd warned them and said please you know don't feel like you have to read it don't feel obligated and and they said, oh, you're overreacting. It's not a big deal. And, <laughs> and then they re- read it, and it was just like, oh, my gosh. Right. What has she done? What, is what she has done? she done?
1: Well, fortunately for them, very few people read literary fiction anymore. So. I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. It's not like it's going to be a yeah. sitcom or something, you know. Yeah,
2: exactly. And it's all – it's okay now, but it was pretty crazy for a while. and um. And so, yeah, I was glad that I wrote the other book before i 'd had the experience of i 'd worked so long and had and had no one really read my work, so i didn 't really know what it was like to get book reviews to get you know the whole thing um so it was kind of um, earth shattering for me in a way to get published finally after all that time
1: sure no it 's really great, and you know you 've had a you 've had a good little run i feel like you 're Yeah, Uh, really gifted. And you have, uh, you know, done something for a part of the country. uh, And for a lifestyle or I don't know, you've made art out of that, which I think is really noble and cool, and would hopefully be fascinating to people, um, you know, who pick it up, I imagine that it really would be. And, you know, i 'm going to be interested to see what happens for you down the road, and uh, yes. I guess the last thing I want to ask you about, uh, which is sort of sort of related but you know not directly so, is uh, your your decision to abandon your Facebook account uh, yeah,
2: this like is I something that you wrote about, about, at, about that too. yeah
1: you wrote about that at the nervous breakdown, and uh, I believe you, you were inspired by Justin Benton, correct who's another one yeah. of our contributors and What's that been like? I mean, because so many authors are sort of, it's sort of the uh, the rule now that you have to get out there on social media and promote your book and promote yourself and build an audience and create a platform right. and all that kind of stuff. And you have decided to pull the plug.
2: Yeah, I know. I think that's a really good, I'm glad you asked about that because I think it's it's really important and has been really important to me, to my writing life and to make that decision. And and I know other people, other writers feel re- totally radically different than me. But um, but for me, like I said earlier, um, I think maybe because I'm a mom and I really do like kind of being liked and my books are not likable in some ways. People, they're very dark and they're upsetting to people. And um, so for instance, when Drift came out, I think one of the PTA moms came up to me and said, I hear you have a book coming out. You know, let's put it in the PTA newsletter. I was like, no, no, that's okay, really. That's fine. Because I knew other people you know, it's wouldn't really wanna read it or hear about these things and so it's a different kind of experience. For me, I'm more of the um introverted writer and that l- needs my privacy to create or and, and to um, and my public persona is maybe very different than my writer um what I write about. And um so when I I finally kinda had it with Facebook before um our after just came out, and I went on there just purely to promote it. And um, and I found myself sort of um, seeking friends' requests and this and that when the book wasn't doing well and being, feeling sort of desperate and, and really going on there and having all my um, misanthropic tendencies sort of verified by what I'd find on Facebook about other people and people I knew in high school. and
1: So you and were, you were really... sort of Facebook stalking them, looking through their photos and stuff?
2: Yeah, and and really, and you know, we would friend each other and stuff, and and it was that same thing in, that I had in high school, where I just I just didn't want to be a part of that. I just wanted to be left alone, and I I felt like it only made me a, a more bitter human person, and or person, and um that it just fed into all those those horrible tendencies that I had to be kind of angry and voyeuristic and misanthropic, and everybody's sort of putting cultivating this um persona of themselves that felt very false and
1: well that's persona. no that's a good point i mean because like you really and do desperately
2: sad it's so sad i hated it everything seems so sad everybody trying so hard to be something and act like this or
1: well you know like and here them... i am on vacation and it's like the best photo of them in the best light at the best angle on the best beach and it's like you get to really self-select you know you get to create yourself yeah
2: you know? But there's something very desperately sad right underneath it to me. Yeah. Because well. I kind of know these people and I know what they're, or I would know more about them, you know. And um, so, yeah, I was kind of instigated by that essay that Justin read. I sort of, I decided to close it down. And I, it's interesting because I just read that other TNB um, article by Alon Is her name Alani?
1: No, it's Elizabeth well Yeah.
2: That you kind of put on your thing so i and and i'm one i just can't i have trouble even commenting on on stuff and i actually do read a lot but i'm not one that wants to go on there and and say what my opinion is or i just feel i don't know there's something about it that it just doesn't ring right for me so i i barely ever even do that but i read that and and um in the comments it was saying something about um you know, about your professional life, but for me, everything that really good that's happened in my career, um, happened after I got off Facebook (laughs) and after I, like I got nominated for the story prize after I got off Facebook, you know, my, so I really don't think for me that it, it's very helpful to, um, self-promotion and, or in Twitter and that stuff. I don't, I don't think I'm good at it. And I think it, brings out the worst in me, and I don't think it, um, in the long run, really serves my career. I, I would, if I, I'm i savvy enough that I would go on there and do it if I had to, but it, for me, it's torture. It's a chore. It takes away from my private life, um, and it takes away from that sort of concentration I need to work, and um, I think the less time I spend online or it, you know, the more I'm reading books and magazines and and doing what I need to do that will serve my work um, and serve the, the the long-term work. So I feel kind of strongly about it. And I I do keep an online presence. I blog on your site, TMB, and then um, I've written for the millions and I write for um, Three Guys, One Book, which I really enjoy. But I even there, I kind of have to find my way um to what feels okay and what doesn't, I think what can happen for me is that i I'm um, anxious to to have my voice heard, or if it 's not being heard, I think i 'm not you know being heard and it's and everything's going to slip away or there 's this sort of desperation, so i 'll post something that 's half baked or not really thought out, and it really needs to sit with me for a long time before I write anything that 's really worth reading.
1: So well, I, the, I feel the same way though, because like I, I'm sort of married to Facebook because of the nervous breakdown. Like, yeah, you know, you, if you if I delete my done. account, then I delete the account for the nervous breakdown. And we have you know ten thousand, uh, nearly ten thousand fans, and it's just it's a great way for us to get site traffic and to get people's work read and to get the word out yeah. about good news. So I don't have a choice to, but I, I also no. I rarely I don't put up photos very much at all. I don't put up personal updates unless they're sort of like silly funny. But the, like right. with Twitter and, and Facebook. Um, I don't know what to say. Like right. I find my and and you know maybe this is part of a broader problem, but like I just kind of feel like what a value do I have to say here? And if I'm not making people giggle or I'm not uh, posting a link that's like a, that I think is like really worthy of being read, then what am I doing? What what am I supposed to tweet? I cannot tweet to save my life. I really no, I've never
2: even tried
1: to tweet. It I don't stresses do. me out. It's like no. I don't know what like. And then you know, for some other people though, it's like effortless. It's effortless fun, and they know exactly right. how to do it. And it's it's like you know, a fish to water. And you know, for them, I, I guess it's to each their own kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I do think it's to each their. And I think some, and as it has been pointed out to me, that there are writers that 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 would if that would just thrive in that kind of environment, and other writers that don't. So it's kind of what you find comfortable and what you don't. But I also believe that you can't really be honest about your um or i can't really say what i think because uh, uh, when i'm commenting or stuff because um it's going to be on there forever and you can't really cross boundaries so you you kind of it's kind of this superficial thing that gets presented to to me it is maybe once in a while someone will say some comment what they really feel but um or what they really think but it's in context. You can't really do that. I don't think.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that's part of like the, the web and social media and putting stuff up constantly is that, you know, if you, if
2: you have to be the nice guy, you have you to, and
1: have to... people, yeah, yeah, people really create pers- you know, persona, or persona, um, what's the plural of persona? I think it's with an E at the end, but
2: persona or something. Persona. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, uh, I just, it seems like a lot of work and I feel like that compulsion to be charming or whatever. and, even yeah. with like the, even with the weekly breakdown, that email newsletter that I've started doing, like the only yeah. way that I, I, mean, I'm a little bit, you know, I try to be a little bit silly and try to include photos just because I feel like that gets people to to click on it and read yeah. it. But yeah. it's mostly just, it's mostly just links. And I'm I'm mostly just pointing readers to the work of, you know, the good work on the site that's showing up. And that is how I, you know, I can do that. But I have a yeah. hard time like I- sitting down and like telling people like, you know, what I did all week in my personal life or I don't know. Right. There's like a level of sharing that I guess everybody has to find uh, their comfort right. zone with. And I just, I, I guess I just don't want to bore people.
2: <laughs> oh no. Yeah. I know. And for me also, I think what would happen is even when I was on Facebook or when I'm online, if someone, if there's a writer, there there were a couple instances where there were writers that I read that I enjoyed their work, but they posted so many times and their personality was so, out in the open and, and everything about their lives and, and sort of them being silly and, and, or, or whatever, these little details about their lives. I just became uninterested in them after that and uninterested in their work. Whereas, where if they produced more work, I really didn't want to read it anymore. So I, for me, um, that was kind of revelatory in that, um, I like my. I I I would rather have my writers have that I admire have a level of mystery to them. I don't want to know about their personal lives, really. So that's everybody's different. I know other people love being able to know everything about writers and they have conversations with them all the time. And and um, maybe I'm. I don't think I'm the only one that feels that way. But I I um I don't really want to know about the writer's life. I've had that in real life too, where. I admire a writers work and then I meet them and they're a disappointment as a human being. So I'd rather not even meet them in some cases, you know, I just want to read their work.
1: Well, sure. And then like, but what about if you read, let's say you read, uh, and I don't know if you do this too, but if I like a, a writer, if I really like somebody, I'll typically read all of their work and I try to read it chronologically. Like I love to read yeah. a writer's fiction chronologically, starting with their first novel or their first story collection and kind of working forward. Cause I, I, there's a part of me that really loves the autobiographical element, or the biographical element, I guess I should say, where I'm trying to sort of see what's happening with the author, I'm guessing at what's happening with the author and his or her life and why this work was produced. And I, I definitely feel that level of kind of detective work going on in my brain. And what right. will happen what will happen for me is that after I finish reading um, you know, all of their books, I'll then sort of voraciously read any kind of literary biography or memoir. Um, right or, or nonfiction about that author that I can find because I find that really satisfying. It sort of completes the circle for me.
2: Yeah, that. Yeah, I've done that as well. Yeah, that's a different kind of maybe investigation than
1: this
2: cyber stalking or cyber awareness or living on the internet. Well, what yeah. Nowadays, I, nowadays you I read somebody's
1: like. you read somebody's novel and then you're just like, let me see their Facebook page, you know? Like, yeah. And then you can just see their vacation photos, and it's like, okay, done. Uh,
2: yeah, or their kids. I don't want to, and I don't want people to see my. I just don't think it. I don't think it fits for me. Yeah. If, if I, and then I always think, oh, keep your mouth shut because you're going to be out back on there promoting again. But the longer I stay off, which has been ever since that Justin Hinton thing, which was 2000. And I think it's been a couple of years probably. Right. I don't know. Yeah,
1: but don't ever know. since
2: I've been off, I've, I've, I've not once been tempted to go back on.
1: Well, I, I think that that makes me, uh, makes, you know, me and all of the listeners that much more, uh, fortunate to be hearing from you since you, oh, thanks. Uh, you, you, you live in total isolation and have cut yourself off from humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I not that. all
2: the way I read every, I read all the, that's, all, i'm reading all the stuff on t and or not all of the stuff but i read a lot on tmb if even if i don't comment on it that's the thing i don't think i need to to have my personality come out every time i appreciate something or enjoy something i i, I like the private reader anonymity thing
1: well i think a lot of, i think a lot of readers I mean, i know that a lot of readers a majority of our readers are exactly the same way and a it's A it's that they just don't you know they either don't have anything to say or don't feel like they want to say something for whatever reason but a lot of it's just time and I'm the same way it's my site and I right. you know I've because I'm doing so much uh, behind the scenes like this show for instance or uh, all the different administrative uh, tasks that are involved in keeping it running I don't have time uh, I read stuff right. but I don't have time to sit there and, and get into the back and forth and, and part of me regrets that because it can be fun and the comment boards can often be. Uh, yeah, re- that's really fascinating. Be more
2: fascinating than the story. Yeah, or, I mean, or the article.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, I'm grateful that people do get into it. Um, but Yeah,
2: people get really into it and they're so smart.
1: Like, yeah. oh, I'm not
2: that smart. I can't comment.
1: And there's there, <laughs> there's some witty people, too. They could be funny. They're
2: very witty. They're really, it's really pretty fascinating that yeah. people feel that comfortable online. But, and I think it's so interesting that some people, are more talented at that than they are at work at actually produce. You know what I mean? That's their thing, their venue.
1: It's yeah. I mean that's the truth. I mean there are people. I've had but this. why thought, is
2: that? I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, it's. I think it's. it's I mean, that's the thing. I think like blogging, for instance, uh,
2: is a certain talent.
1: It's a certain form. It's just. A, it's a. It's and I think it's a legitimate form. And there are people who are really right. good at it. Like I think I had sort of a knack for it, especially when I was doing it. I was. I was doing it daily for a long time like a oh, long wow. time promoting my book and like I think to an yeah. extent I burn myself out because you just you know you have to come up with stuff every day but oh, you, know, be, you, yeah. so, you sort of learn it, and you learn what works and you know you realize that a lot of times that um you know interactivity and allowing readers to participate, you know, when you have a comment board tagged onto the piece of writing, um yeah. it becomes this two sided or, or multi sided conversation. And so if you can start conversation with your work, that's sort of the So that's key. what
2: you're trying to do,
1: yeah. You, yeah, I mean, you, you sort of learn it because you'll leave the, you feel like you'll leave the readership disappointed if you don't give them something to sort of chew on and talk about back and forth, and, um, you right. know, and then it becomes that whole thing of instant gratification where once the comments start going, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for any writer to Look not, that. Enjoy, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to like yeah. getting that response and seeing what people think, but. Um, yeah,
2: the TMB thing has been an interesting experience for me, for that reason, just kind of mm, discovering people through their uh, gravatars and comments and feeling like you know them and then kind of seeking out their, to see their comments. And then I've had the experience where someone, I'll read this person's comments and think, oh, this person is just fascinating and so smart. And then they'll post a piece and it's just horrible.
0: (laughs) What if they write
2: that when they write the comments that are so sharp and, and, So I think maybe they're putting their writer hat on and not writing like their comments or I don't know.
0: Yeah, no,
1: it's like it's like less self-conscious or something or it's more it's more immediate. Like that's something that's been in my head uh, lately a lot, you know, with regard to writing is like what writing causes an emotional response in me, an authentic emotional response. Like when I'm reading something, I always say when I'm reading something, does it change my body temperature? And yeah. the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of it out there, but there's also a lot of it that just doesn't work for me and it can be beautifully crafted. Uh, right? but there's something about the authenticity of it, the, the immediacy right. of it, the fact that it's not overwrought and it hasn't been thought through and there's not all this self-consciousness that's seeped into it. right? Sure. And it, you know, it's like when I think about my own work, it's like, I, I'm really at the point where I'm considering how to balance those two impulses like the impulse to, yeah. craft, to craft well but the impulse to also write stuff that has real emotion in it and that isn't bled of right. all that all that real kind of human stuff because I'm so worried about like how it looks you know <laughs> or like, right does that make sense you know
2: people are going to read it yeah definitely it's a, it's a mysterious beast
1: indeed oh, well I think that's a good note for us to sign off on it's been great talking yeah. to you and I want to thank wanna you ha- I'll have you back on once, uh, you know, your next book, uh, you know, coalesces and, and gets out there.
2: Okay, that sounds good. It was good to talk to you, too.
1: All right, Tori, take care.
2: You,
1: too. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
1: All right, folks, that's the show. There it is. There it is in its entirety. That's the whole thing. It's done. It's uh, it's running a little long. I mean, it's a, it's over an hour. I hope that's okay. I figure there's no time limit, and so if the conversation's good and it's going, I'm just going to let it happen. It's a podcast. You can do that. We have that freedom here. So I won't talk for long. I'm going to sign off. Before I go, don't forget that if you want to email me, if you have thoughts about this show or thoughts about anything in general, the email address that you can contact me at is letters at com. If you're feeling generous and you want to help the show, if you love the show and you want to see the show continue to flourish. You can join the TNB Book Club. That's the way that I ask for uh you know a few bucks here or there. And the way that I like to do it is that if you join the TNB Book Club by going to the nervousbreakdown dot com and uh clicking on the you know book club in the menu bar, it's easy to sign up. It's nine ninety nine a month and uh, you get a book every thirty days delivered to your door. So you sign up, you help out, but you get a book in exchange. It's less than the cost of a book. It's actually like a good deal. So If that sounds like something you want to do, uh, I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, I I appreciate you listening. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for spreading the word. And I will be back soon with more ramblings and more conversations with authors for you, etc.
2: Not my eyes be to this.